Hi, here we are, Sunday morning, uh, for a short reflection, and uh, it's from Mark chapter 9. That's the Transfiguration, pretty well-known passage this morning. And um, it starts at the beginning of chapter 9, and I'm just really going to verse 13 uh, of that passage. So it's really well-known, it's spectacular, and I suppose the question is, well, What's it for? What are we going to learn from it? Well, remember that a text without a context is a pretext, and we get this picture leading up to this of Jesus taking uh, the disciples up to the north end of Galilee and then going way beyond that into foreign land of Caesarea Philippi and asking Peter, who do people say that I am? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, the son of the living God must suffer and die, etc. Oh, no, 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 no. Satan, says Jesus. All happening in a foreign place. It's all been lovely froth and bubble up in the beautiful north of Galilee up until this point. But it's you, you get this sense, this ominous foreboding in this foreign land, although it's beautiful up in the north. Beautiful trees, chocolate-covered soil, lovely limestone, etc., but this prediction of death that then leads into, um, into the transfiguration that begins with the words, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, some are standing here who will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. And then we go into the passage of the transfiguration. Jesus waits six days and then he takes them up a mountain two possible mountains. One is Tabor near Nazareth. Don't worry, you can look it up. The other one is Mount Hermon. And the reason they think it's Mount Hermon that they went up is because essentially at Caesarea Philippi, if you keep going away from um, the north end of the Sea of Galilee, if you keep going north, um, you're basically uh, at Caesarea Philippi in the foothills of Mount Hermon. And so there's this enigmatic six days where, you know, six is always the picture of not quite uh, seven, not quite perfection. Um, maybe it's pointing to that, but you'll see the kingdom of God with power, Jesus says. They go up and uh, the various things happen, but we'll reflect on them on the way. So what are we supposed to learn very quickly? It's interesting that Mark leads us to this point in chapters 1 to 8. What happens at this point is a couple of things that are really, really significant. This is like the seesaw of Mark's gospel, where it tips and it tips on the Mount of Transfiguration. From here, parables and miracles, you know, the fun stuff, start to disappear. From here, the teaching about the kingdom of God is replaced by the son of man so the focus is narrowing from the whole purpose of the rule and reign of God eternally and it actually flips in this passage to actually focusing on uh, the son of God God in the flesh who will come and suffer and die to save and redeem and forgive and restore all of human uh, kind but also all of creation so that flips here as well secondly it moves to emphasize the disciples from here on not the crowd so the teachings much more personal intimate and challenging notions as we see here like deny yourself if you're going to be if you're going to put your roots down deep as we reflected on you must deny yourself take up your cross and follow 
The other thing is that the north, Galilee, is now replaced by Jesus setting his face to Jerusalem and all that'll take place there. So it gets, it gets grim from here on in. There's a couple of things about the Transfiguration, and we can only got time for a couple. Don't want to. Someone said to me, you know, when you're live, you're alive. When you're on that thing, you're kind of a bit dead. So I'll keep it as short as I can. But a couple of things we learn. The first thing is about Jesus and and who we worship as Christians. Um, centuries before, in a, at a time called the Exodus, uh, on Mount Sinai down in northeast Egypt. Uh, God comes down where? On a mountain. How? In a cloud. Here we are. It's, uh, it's got resonance to it. Moses goes to the top of that mountain. Who's here? Moses. He goes to the top of that mountain and witnesses. What does he witness? God's glory. It's infinite, but it's also destructive. You can read about it in Exodus 33. Moses, on returning down from the mountain, comes back and it's like he's absorbed this glory and he's reflecting now. So when people, they can't look at they ask him to put a veil over his face. His face is shining with the reflected glory of God and that, that keeps going for a number of days. So now here we are, centuries later, on the top of another mountain. There's a cloud, there's glory, there's dazzling brightness. It's heavenly. There's even a Moses. Is it Mount Sinai all over again? No. And that's the point of this passage. Remember, Moses reflected uh, God's glory. Jesus is the one from whom the glory comes or emanates. Jesus produces the glory of God. Jesus doesn't point to the glory, like Moses and Elijah was a pointer, a prophet who pointed to the glory of God. No, Jesus is the glory of God in human form. So essentially, up until this point, there'd been a kind of a middle ground and people had filled this middle space, like a Moses or Elijah, to, to kind of mediate between us and God. Very much the case at Sinai. Jesus is not a reflector or a pointer. He is the glory of God. Essentially, he closes the chasm of the middle ground. That is a radical reality that takes place here in the presence of these fishermen from the north of Galilee. It's just extraordinary. So secondly, Jesus teaches us something about worship and himself. That's my second point. So on Mount Sinai, the glory of God is in the cloud. It's called the Shekinah. Have you heard that? The Shekinah glory of God. And this voice, this Shekinah, speaks out of the cloud and its raw presence. It's powerful. And there's a whole story in there about it can be fatal. Moses has to guard himself so he doesn't see it. So when God says to Moses, you may not look upon my face and live, what, what it's pointing to is the infinite gap between deity and humanity. 
between you and me and God, there's a chasm. And Peter's right to be scared, which he is. He's scared to death. He's terrified. And it says um, that he was so scared that he just blurted something out and didn't know what he was saying. Now, what we tend to do is we tend to focus on the blurting, not what he blurted, not what he actually blurted. He says, Rabbi, let's erect some shelters for you and for Moses and for Elijah. Now, that may seem ridiculous, but sometimes when we blurt something out, we actually blurt something out that's really, really profound and sensible and maybe even useful. Because that word that's used for shelter is actually the same word that the Bible uses for tabernacle. God tabernacles amongst his people. They built a tabernacle, carried it around. And that's where God dwelt amongst his people. Tabernacles capture the glory and awesome power of God essentially traveling with people. They couple with it a priest craft and a sacrificial system, a system of appeasement so that they can be near God or in his presence but not be destroyed. Why does all that matter? Because you have to have a tabernacle when there's a gap, when there's a chasm between you and your capacity to enter in and come near the presence of God. Then we get told that it, when, the, when the cloud appeared and enveloped, enveloped them in the transfiguration, a voice came from within the cloud. Now remember, this is the fatal Shekinah glass cloud that these three followers of Jesus have now not been guarding themselves from but are actually enveloped in and the voice comes from within the cloud this fatal voice in the past historically and it makes this incredible statement that this is my son whom I love listen to him the voice is passing the mantle from himself to the sun. And they don't die. It's just extraordinary. How could this be? Well, here's the answer. They no longer see anyone with them except Jesus. Jesus is the secret answer that the God who dwelt among them now dwells with them and in due course after the resurrection will dwell in them all these fiery scary processes and tabernacles and realities and historical uh, revelation of God now dwells not outside us not even with us but within us it's extraordinary and that's Mark's way of saying Moses is gone Elijah's gone. Jesus is not just the God on the other side of the gap. Jesus is actually the bridge over the gap for you and for me. It's stunning. So Jesus is the temple and the tabernacle to end all temples and tabernacles because he's the sacrifice and the priest that's ended all the need for sacrifices and priests. 
through him the infinite beauty and glory of God can envelop you and me. So when the cloud came down, it's not just that they didn't die. It wasn't just not fatal. It was the ultimate expression of worship. They were surrounded by the brilliance of God, the reality of God, and they were embraced in it and by it. And they heard the glory of God speaking of love, the Father's love for the Son, which is the ultimate expression of our faith. And we're, we're part of it. And then suddenly it goes away. They sense the reality of God and they see the reality of God. But it goes away. The joy is that through the Lord Jesus, you can come into the very heart of the universe through him. And worship is a foretaste of the thing that all of our hearts actually long for. That incredible revelation and being embraced by him and enveloped by his love. That's the mountaintop. You know what you do with mountaintop experiences when you have them? You bank them. You bank them. But you don't try and make life about reproducing them. Don't make it all about them, but do bank them. Jesus, who's the object of our worship, he's also the secret of our worship. So what? I'm finishing. As soon as they come off the mountain, they're plunged immediately into confusion. Now, we didn't read that bit. That's beyond verse 13. But there's demoniacs. Look, here, here are some of, the, some of the expressions. People are arguing. There are Pharisees. There are lawyers in verse 14. Well, we know what that means. They're arguing. There are demons. Here are some of the words. Overwhelmed, possessed, robbed, seizures, gnashing of teeth. This is just in the first couple of verses after coming down from the mountain. And you might remember exactly the same happens on Sinai. There's a bull and a golden calf and bah, it's all gone. What? As you'd say to hell in a handbasket. So they come off the mountain and immediately they're plant plunged into this situation. And in fact, this, the same situation that we see in Exodus. So the mountaintop experiences are episodic and they're important. But basically, life is a journey because from now on, Jesus is teaching his disciples the way of the cross, the journey to the cross. So what is the transfiguration then? It's actually a foretaste of the resurrection, a glimpse of it in all its glory and a foretaste of the second coming of Jesus. But it's just a foretaste, an episode, and they happen, bank them. Life, though, is a journey and a journey to the cross. It's a long journey to Jerusalem where the Son of Man is going to suffer and die. And he tells us in this passage that that's our journey with him as well. But we're with him. There's only one real question, isn't there? Will the suffering you experience make you a wiser, deeper, stronger, sweeter person? Or will it make you bitter and hard and joyless? 
Will it drive you closer to God or away from God? Will it make you more compassionate about other people? Or is it going to make you harder and more cynical about human nature? In this world, the Bible teaches as we move on in Mark, there will be tribulations, Jesus says. So what's the key? What will keep the tribulations from turning you and me hard, destructive, difficult, ornery, onerous? What will keep us from being like that? What will make them, those tribulations, such that they turn you and I, like Jesus, into something great? Well, the answer is, is remarkably worship coming back to the heart of worship which is to remember on a regular basis the Lord Jesus if you come off the Mount of Transfiguration remembering the reality even the mo though most of the time in life we don't see that extraordinary reality that's the heart of worship we remember again and again and again in the Old Testament they were told to remember. Most of life is not all that clear. Most of life is not all that easy to understand what's really going on. Most of our lives are not all that vivid and amazing and exciting. But most of our lives are calls to be worshipping people in worshipping community. And that's what we're called to do and to be. So in this time of transition and uncertainty, what do you do? You worship. Lord, bless your people. Love your people. Help those roots to go deeper. Father, help them to get through weeds and thorns, concerns and desires, and take us deeper into your heart of worship. Amen.